you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Now entering Nerdist.com. My guest was enjoying a successful career as a TV writer when at age 30, he co-created a little game-changing plane crash show called Lost uh, that has talking about smoke monsters and polar bears and playing the numbers 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42 in the lottery week after week. I never won! Since then, he's written huge sci-fi juggernauts like Star Trek Into Darkness, Prometheus, World War Z, Tomorrowland, recently wrapped up the third and final season of the cult HBO drama The Leftovers, a show that explores what might happen if, uh, let's say, 2% of the world's population suddenly disappeared. Tonight, Damon Lindelof will be talking with Chris Hardwick. We've heard from you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook using at Talking. I'm going to read your questions, comments, and comments using uh, hashtag Talking Hard Work. We're going to get a look at uh, some video messages you send in. We're going to give away things to people who ask questions here in this very studio audience. But first, I'm going to talk to Damon. Is First of all, I want you to know something. Uh, you're the first person that we asked to be on the show. What? Yes. Wow, that is an, um, immensely f- flattering and slightly terrifying. No, I, I feel like I always, I feel like I always uh, everything, because you've done a lot of stuff. I mean, I've, I've asked you to do a lot of things in the past. Podcasts, you did the, the Nerdist BBC show. Uh, I will say yes to everything. I appreciate I, that. I feel like the only time we ever get to see each other is when, we, when we're on camera or you're podcasting. So I will always say yes. I appreciate it. This is, this is wonderful for me, too. So da- thank you for having da- me. Damon was a part of a very important part of, of Nerdist podcast history, which is that uh, the very first time I ever met Robert Kirkman was when we did a podcast with him oh, right. at Meltdown Comics. <laughs> and you happened to be there. And somehow Kirkman and I, someone asked, like, asked Kirkman, uh, what would you do in a zombie apocalypse? And Kirkman goes, oh, I'd uh, fucking kill myself. Right. Uh, it's a terrible world. Why would yes. I want to be in that world? Yes. And they go, how would you do it? And he goes, I don't know, I'd probably hang myself. And so it, we got on this weird comedy riff, and I don't know how it happened, but it was something about uh, Kirkman hanging himself. 
opposite a Sasquatch, and the Sasquatch was jerking him off with its feet. Right. And then, and we called it Sasquatching, which yeah. has since, if you put Robert Kirkman's name into Google, it'll say Robert Kirkman Sasquatch. Yes. And Damon happened to be there, and he goes, I will give $1,000 to anyone who draws that right now. I think maybe three people did. Three people draw it. One of them drew it on the spot. On the spot. <laughs> yeah. And Damon Lindelof gave each of those people $1,000. <laughs> and then he, he held up his end of the bargain. Yes. And I have a legendary T-shirt, which is one of, like, three T-shirts where you turn that drawing into a shirt, and you kept one, you sent me one, and you gave one to Kirkman. Absolutely. And I always have to explain to people, like, what's happening in that picture? Like, oh, don't worry about yeah. it. It's not a... No, and, and Kirkman has offered to buy back all three pieces of art <laughs> for, like, $20,000. So it's, it's kind of a Banksy thing going on there. But I, I'm, holding, I'm holding on to those. But so let, let's, let's go back to the beginning for you, because I know you, you grew up in New Jersey, and then, but, and, and, but you are a legitimate part of our collective subculture it's not you this th you are of this world that you write for now for sure so but what made you decide to start writing um i was born in 1973 so you know that 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 period from uh, 73 to 83 when the original trilogy came out my dad was a huge sci-fi sci nerd and um, and basically curated all that stuff for me. And I was just, um, you know, uh, seeing lots of movies and television shows and reading fantasy books and all that stuff. And, you know, there were comic conventions in New York City at the time that were actually comic conventions. So I got really into comic books and all that stuff. So it was sort of like a steady diet of, you know, of Star Wars, Star Trek and, you know, and Alan Moore. Right. And, you know, for 12 years and I was just basically like, it would be, this is all I want to do uh, for the rest of my life. And it would be a cruel joke if I wasn't good enough uh, at it to make a living. Um, but uh, I just became obsessed with writing and storytelling and, uh, um, and uh, pursued that path all the way through high school. I mean, careers that are born out of fandom are the absolute best. But I, al I often wonder when you are actually, when, when work sprouts out of your passion, what hobbies are left for you? Like, is it, does it still feel like, does it still feel like the same passionate thing? Or when you have deadlines or when you have pressure, or when you're getting notes, you're like, ah, boy, this was the thing that I loved. And now I just see it as work. Yeah, there are stuff, I mean, uh, there are definitely days where it feels like a job, but, you know, uh, they're few and far between. I mean, I think that the reality of um, uh, saying that these are high-class problems uh, is 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 beyond the surreality of basically saying I get to make stuff up for a living and right. and, and putting it in that frame. I think that you know I was writing fanfic. Um, you know, when I was in middle school and high school, and now I still am, except now, <laughs> now people make it, so... Were you, what, were you writing, like, Star Wars Universe fan fiction? Was that what oh, it was? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Do you uh, remember that, any of it? That Star Trek, oh my god, it's probably... Uh, let's just say, like, lots of Ewoks having sex. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it was a yub -nub, yub -nub, yub -nub, yeah. yub -nub. <laughs> It was... Oh, yub -nub. It, it was an upsetting time. A lot of, a lot of nub-yubbing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag. Hashtag. I don't know what that is, but it sounds illegal. What was your What was your first job out of school? Uh, 
my uh, when I moved to Los Angeles after I graduated college. Yeah. Did you um, go right into writing? I uh, no, I, wor- I, I worked in um, in LA for five years before I got a job, even as a writer's assistant. So I worked for this uh, uh, TV movie, The Week Production Company was my first gig. I was an intern, and they did like um, you know movies with like Tori Spelling and like Jenny Garth, like kind right. of like uh, uh, you know Mother I married a cheerleader who tried to kill me kind of uh, <laughs> movies. And then I worked for an agency for a year. I worked for an exec uh, uh, at Paramount for a year. Then I became an exec uh, for a production company. And all that time, I was writing my own stuff. But it was all pretty uh, shitty. So, Well, what was the, what was the experience of being a, a, <coughs> an executive? Because I feel like it's, a, it's very easy. You know, we get frust- creative people get frustrated with executives a lot. You're like, oh, why do they make this decision or why do they do that? And sometimes I, I, I just go, there must be something about that world that I don't understand because they do have the pressures of trying to, because it really is about commerce. Sure. And so how do, you, how do you make something artistic when really a large part of your goal is commerce? Uh, for all the reasons that you just stated, it, I was a very bad executive. Um, and, uh, and I think that if you're looking at things through the prism of, you know, what's the best creatively or what's going to make this cool, even if only five people watch it, that you're not an effective executive. And I think that idea of when I first came out to Los Angeles, because I went to film school at NYU, where it was sort of like the culture was just kind of shoot your movie. Like, it was all about, you know, Cone Brothers and David Lynch and early Scorsese and all that stuff. Then I came out to L.A. and it was like, th- we, they called it the industry. Right. And just even that idea. What, what do you, like, industry, I, it just evokes, like, you know, uh, like Dickens. Right. You know, like smokestacks. Smokestacks. And, you know, and, and sort of like, yeah. you know. And, Did you write a script tonight, Governor? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. and so, like, you know, suddenly, like, you know, the executives are the fat cats who are smoking cigars and wearing monocles and top right. hats and deciding, you know, uh, which, uh, which motion picture should get made um, was sort of antithetical to uh, everything that I knew. But it was really valuable because I think that that idea of if you're a writer and particularly when you move into television and you're a writer-producer, you have to deal with executives on a regular basis. And what I've found, you know, for the most part is I, I've had pretty great relationships with them because... Um, they are creative executives, and the system actually does kind of weed out the ones who only care about the product. Right. And it just finds really smart people who, I think, speak in the same vernacular as you and I do, but then they view themselves more as enablers of creativity. And when you deal with, you know, I was a frustrated writer as an executive, and they're the most dangerous kind because instead of giving you notes to help you write your own stuff, they just want to grab it and say, you know, let me do that, or I know better than you. It doesn't become a creative uh, collaboration or a conversation. So I I was bad at that job, unfortunately. I was, uh, I I, I migrated over into writing. Did you, what was your first writer's, I I, I looked at your IMDb page, I'm like, what was Damon's first, and the first credit I saw on there, you can confirm or deny, a little show called MTV's Undressed. Is that it? I, that sci-fi fantasy con- classic yeah. show. Confirm, confirm, <laughs> confirm. And the, you know, and the D, how did we arrive at Lost? Undressed. Right. Uh, MTV's Undressed. We wrote, I believe, 36 episodes in four weeks. That sounds about right. Yes. So the quality bar. Um, but what an incredible experience. It though. was. Like, even working in, in television that might not seem like, oh, that's the most creatively satisfying thing in the world. What an incredible crash course to start building up your tool set and understand who you are because I think with any, you know, whether it's music or stand-up or writing or whatever it is, the, really, the, there, there's no real secret, I feel like, you just have to do it a shit ton 
to really start to understand who you are? Did that was that I assume that was helpful. It was an amazing experience for for a couple of reasons. The first was that you know, it was the first time that I was really in a writer's room. And so there's 10 other individuals and you have to work collaboratively. I mean, that idea of I'm just going to go off and write my script. You had to kind of know what everybody else was doing. Yeah. And then the other amazing part was that they, they basically had three sets. And, you know, one set is like an apartment that has a hot tub out back and one is like a school <laughs> locker room, et cetera. And, like, there were these rules that were basically like every three scenes, you've got to get people in that hot tub. Yeah. Like, and so, like... Guys, you know, what if the lockers had a hot tub near them? Right, Holy exactly. shit! Yeah. Yeah. We never even thought of that. We never even thought of that. Thought 30, of that. Yeah. 36 episodes. So, but I, but I think that sometimes the like the narrative constraints it's like that scene in apollo 13 where the guy comes in and just bu- uh, dumps like a box of shit on the table and is like this is all they got up there and they can't breathe and you have to make a uh, you know an oxygen filter out of this stuff right and and that's all that they're uh, limited with i i think that you know we had no money we had no time but i think there were a number of really talented writers there was this other guy steve denight who was basically who i met on um on uh on Undressed, who went on to do great things in the Whedon verse, and he created like a Spartacus and all this other stuff. So it was like, you know, everybody was young and hungry and um, and eager to get in the hot tubs. So you mentioned the Whedon verse. I know you were uh, you were a very uh, early adopter of of Buffy. I mean, is is loving the Buffy pilot like an uh, er, early adoption? I mean, I, and I, I guess I, I love the movie as well, the original right. Christy Swanson, right? But, uh, certainly, when I heard that it was going to be a TV show, uh, I got super psyched, and I was a big part of the the Buffy fandom. And um, they, you know, th- those were the early days of basically like message boards. So they had, you know, like a um, like a web page yeah. that you could basically go and uh, and post on about how you liked the episode, and then Whedon would just show up, and he'd be like, "Cool, thanks." Yeah, he'd be like, "What?" Like it was crazy. I feel so. like that was before the internet got super toxic, it, where yes. it was like it really was a place. There for was fans. On, there was only love in the Buffy verse. You know, I yeah. feel like I, I do. I hope that Buffy fans don't forget the movie that spawned it all because that uh, that movie was fantastic, and Luke Perry's great, great in it, and Paul, Paul Rubens is yes. great yeah, in it, absolutely. And it and it and I know the show really became its own, really became its own thing, and I think in a lot in in most ways overshadowed the movie. But if you haven't watched the original Buffy movie in a long time, it is 100%. It holds up. It holds oh, up. Sure. And, it's, and, and Sutherland. It's, and, abso- and Donald Sutherland, of course. Sutherland. Absolutely. And I had heard rumors that uh, Anthony, that they were looking at maybe at Anthony Head as maybe like a doctor, as, 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 the, new, as the new doctor. I don't, oh, really? I don't know if that was the case. I was pushing for Tilda Swinton. I thought she would have made an amazing doctor. We, we need a female doctor. But I think, and I think Tilda would have been perfect. Yes. Or a master, but I think she would have been a great doctor. But, the, but those early days of Buffy, that was right around the turning point of, I think, when, when the entertainment industry started recognizing our subculture as a thing that people... Because that was... You know, Buffy was right around the time, not too long after that, we get... Brian Singer's X-Men, we get Raimi Spider-Man, sure. you know, we, it, we, we get these movies that, uh, that start recognizing that this is, this is a culture that really has a rabid thirst for really great, for great content. No, for sure. And, and, and Joss was obviously, I think, obviously, Chris Carter did X-Files before Buffy came along, but there wasn't a lot of serialized genre on television. But I think Joss was the first one who was basically kind of raised in that same era mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of being a fan as a kid and then essentially saying like, oh, I want to make that stuff or I want to remix that stuff. Um, it's sort of like being born in the era of rock and roll 
and then, you know, and you're listening to Elvis and Chuck Berry, and then, like, then what kind of music are you going to make 20 years right. later? And, right. And you get Buffy, which is, like, you know, in many ways a love letter to all that, all that stuff that we were watching in the 70s and early 80s. But also, the, you know, the, the, there certainly was a humor to it that I think, like, a, an awareness of what it was, an awareness of that, that it, the show really had this personality of, like, we're making this show for not a lot of money. It's we're fans. It's for fans. Like you, you can tell, there's this whole other story that's happening around the show that really is a love letter to fandom. Oh, for sure. And you know, and the characters on the show were fans. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, uh, I feel like Buffy sort of always walked that line without never turning to the camera and winking. The emotional stakes always felt incredibly real, but it, it could also just get super silly. Um, without ever, you know, kind of breaking. And, and I think the same is true of fandom in general, which is, you know, we, t- we both alternatively take this stuff super seriously, but at the same time, we understand it's a Wookiee. Right. You know, like, and, 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 and so that, like, you know, you have to be able to, when you're in the Wookiee argument, and, you know, and you're talking about how many E's or how many Y's it's in, two. in it's the two, It's two E's Or Wookie. how many Y's in the, in the home planet of Kashyyyk. Right. You know, you, you have to step out of your body and go, wow, he, what an idiot. <laughs> um, and, well, then, and then come back in and then win the, win the argument. I, I honestly, you know, this is actually something, I'm glad you brought that up because I, <laughs> I am kind of interested to hear what you think about, as someone who has left social media, like, what do you, do, do you think fandom is broken right now? Do you think we're in a bad place where, because there is, I think it's great to be passionate and it's great to care about things, but I think there's something happening in fandom right now which is like a violent entitlement. Guys, it's supposed to be entertainment. I love it, you love it, but it's not, like, let's, let's not murder each other over it. Where do you think we're at? Um, I'm now antisocial. I don't, I, I think that Twitter is bad. Um, uh, um, but, uh, but it's bad for me. It's not empirically bad. I just felt like it was, it was bringing out the worst in me. And sure. I think that one of the things that I found, it, it, I, I think that I, I, I'd be a bit of a baby if I just left Twitter because people were saying mean things about me. That's part of the job. Like even the greatest athletes in the world, you know, if they have one bad game, their most diehard fans are going to boo them. Right. You just have to say, like, that's cool. They are still fans of the team, and they're still fans of mine. The, the part of Twitter that upset me was that if I tweeted something nice, like I just saw a movie that I loved, it got no play, no favorites, no retweets. But if I said something kind of mean, it went everywhere. Right. And then your brain starts to go, people like it when I say mean things. Sure. And when you're getting that kind of, you know, Pavlovian response in your own head, you start to understand why people say mean things on Twitter because it gets more attention. Gets attention. Yeah. yeah. And what it's all about, it's all about getting attention. And, and when that stuff, not only does that stuff rise to the top, but when that's all the stuff that's getting the most attention, it feels like, oh, everyone is toxic. And right. you realize, no, not everyone's toxic. Maybe those people who wrote those things don't even necessarily believe those things. For sure. Did you feel like when you left social media that, did you immediately feel like you got a piece of your life back? Yeah, I mean, my, my wife had been t- been telling me to to get off it 
uh, for like a long time. And I think like any addict, it's just like, because it's not a problem. It's, it's, it's making me you need be- to know what's going on. It's making me better. People, you know, and that's what I convince myself of is like, this is where I can get honest feedback. Like in the real world, nobody really tells me what they don't like about my writing. You know, they'll just kiss my ass and tell me how great I am all the time. But here in Twitter, you know, I can mainline like truth. Right. Um, And what happened was I just stopped. There were people who were saying really nice things on Twitter, too. And I was just ignoring them. And I just focused in on on the mean things. And so I would take, you know, somebody who had 17 followers who called me a hack and just retweet it, you know, to my 250,000 followers and, you know, and so my 250,000 followers understand, like, hey, I know that some people out there think I'm a hack and this is my way of acknowledging that there's a criticism out there and I'm grounded and I'm humble and, and all these other things. But meantime, I'm basically broadcasting a new narrative, which is I'm a hack. Right. And so um, to a much larger audience than it would have gone out to otherwise. But if I had gone the other route and basically, you know... I, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I was on Twitter, if somebody retweeted something nice about themselves, not that they said, but if they're basically like, oh, here's a good review of something right. that I wrote, you're just basically like, oh, you know, fuck that. <laughs> you know? Like, it does bring out a lot of yeah, negative stuff. But, right. but, I, but I do think there's this false idea out there that, it, and, and, and it seems, at least from the internet that I have been observing, that uh, all negativity equals truth. And I don't believe that. I, I feel like a lot of it now particularly is manufactured or if I see, I don't even mean like reviews for anything that I do, but if I read reviews and blogs or whatever and I just feel like, do you really believe this or is that that website's brand because it all kind of has a similar tone and there's a certain snark and it sort of feels like you're just trying to show that you're a clever writer and no one's going to listen to you if you're honest. Because I do feel like there are some properties that people always say are amazing and some properties that they feel like it's okay to shit on and maybe that's true but i feel like all negativity is not always truth and we have to get out of this idea that it is i i totally agree but like uh like any sort of uh general axiom that there is a you know there is a part of it that where there is truth where essentially uh, you know like take the pepsi ad with kendall jenner that right. you know was months and months ago from from now is Pepsi a sponsor of this show? I don't think okay. so. I don't know. <laughs> you know. Oh, you mean uh, that ad where she know. solved everyone's problems by right. simply handing them a the delicious of, Pepsi? In the middle of a protest march. Got us covered now. So, but, but so basically, there's a whole process where truth is not being spoken to the people who made that ad up until the moment that it exists. And a lot. That went through yeah. a lot of hands right. before it made it to the air. And everyone was then, like, guys, we're doing it. And then Twitter, <laughs> and then, and then Twitter basically goes... We unanimously agree. <laughs> when, you know, Twitter is like, you know, you get Republicans and Democrats, people from all over the spectrum. Are, the, the country couldn't be more divided, but the one thing that brought us all together was we can all agree this was a very bad idea. It wasn't. And like, it wasn't know, when, the Pepsi that brought everyone together. It was the hatred for the Pepsi commercial. But, but, you know, like if you're Pepsi and you're basically like you see the first n- negative tweet and you're like, oh, refresh. And it's just like, <laughs> and then you realize, oh, shit. Like, and that, and, and, and you're getting truth that you are getting, you're finally getting truth yeah, in, yeah. A, in a process where there probably wasn't much leading up to it. I mean, I'm sure they were well-intentioned. I'm just saying like that, that can happen. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's useful. Well, I think, I definitely think that is useful. And I'm sure that they, <laughs> I wonder yeah. at what point they were like, refresh, uh-huh, refresh, how? Oh. Refresh. 
Here's one guy who loves it. He's, he's, yeah. he's like, yeah. oh, that was Kendall Jenner. Shit! <laughs> oh, my God, what, what have we done? Right, you know, yeah. what have we done? So it is, I, I do think that there is a great equalizer, and I do think for social media, it also has given people a voice that wouldn't have necessarily had a voice, or it, 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 has, it, it has created positive social change. But I also feel like the, that its economy is negativity. It does that through negativity. Even, even, even people who are, even like anti-bullying people, have kind of, like some of them become bullies because right. that's the tactic that works on social media because it is, not, it is not about having conversations. It's just about yelling and blah. This is what I think really quickly. You know, yes. it's not, hey, let's sit down and understand each other. Let's really try to talk about this. It's not, it's not, a, good, it's not a good forum for cons- constructive conversation. It's not a good forum for constructive conversation. And, you know, I can imagine what's so fascinating to me is that you know, I guess, you know, Lost has been off the air for a while now, but the beginning of Lost just barely missed social media. Right. And it seems like, you know, I think we all assume like, oh, social media is just this permanent picture of our culture. It really was not that long ago. I mean, Lost started in 2004. Yes. Twitter was 07, I think. Uh-huh. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and I honestly, I really do wish in some senses that I had social media for Lost. I wish Lost had an after show because I would have hosted the shit out of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would have. I, I used to call my that. friends. I used to call my when you guys were doing when you guys were doing that um, that uh, that like re, that reality marketing thing where it's oh my god there was a commercial for the Hanzo Foundation <laughs> in the middle of the thing and there was a website and I went on there and there was a weird thing and that led me to another like those rabbit holes like that was such you you guys really understood what it was like to create a, a, an ecosystem for fans that I was so willing to throw myself into, was that, were you part of that process? Did, was it important for you to create this experience for the fans of the show? Yeah, totally. I'm, I, you know, the, the world building was one of the most fun parts of doing the show, but it was also one of the hardest things to put in the body of the show because, you know, one of the things that, you know, we justifiably got a lot of criticism for, but but was an, a necessary construct of a, of a mythology show like Lost was that the characters on the show had to care a lot less about the mysteries than the audience did. So the characters didn't give a shit about the Hanzo Foundation. <laughs> or it's just basically like, hey, I just shot a polar bear anyway. You know, like, and, and like because in, in real life, all the characters will be doing all the time is talking about the mythology. And we've seen that show, right? And, you know, we're different versions of that show. And it's not that great. And because they were in a closed environment. So, but, but we as writers were really interested in all that stuff. And we knew that the fans needed to be fed. And we had to mitigate this frustration of like, why aren't the characters talking about what just happened in the last episode? Right. That would be really useful information to share with one another, <laughs> Saeed. That you were like just kidnapped by this French woman. Like, and you saw these numbers. You should be telling people about this. And so we, we were like, we have to basically... Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't just pure sleight of hand. Look over here, but we had to. We had to feed the mythology through these so, sort of other systems, um, and the you know the stuff that we were able to do between seasons, um, you know stuff in video games or or, or, or online content. Uh, that that was all very exciting. But then it ended up being so fun that it took our eye off the ball of the mothership. And so you have to basically say, like, our job is to write episodes of Lost. We can't be playing over here in the Hanso Foundation right. the entire time. What was the pitch for Lost? The, pit, the pitch was Lloyd Braun, who was the, ABC, the president of ABC at the time, his pitch was we should do Survivor as a drama series. 
Like, Survivor was the most popular reality show, if not, like, the number one show in America. And, like, what does that look like as, as a drama series? And Lloyd developed that idea with Aaron Spelling, of all people, um, and this other writer, Jeffrey Lieber, um, over the course of the, the development, the 2003 development season. And, um, and uh, Jeffrey wrote what, what, uh, what Aaron Spelling probably told him to write, which, write, which was a soap opera set on an island. Right. So th- they wrote a script called Nowhere, and the pilot basically took place over the course of six months. It starts with a plane crash, and then it, and, and then it basically cuts to, you know, they've now built, like, these Swiss Family Robinson stru- – they've now been on the island for six months, and they're all walking around and fucking each other. Right. Like, um, Just like know. on Gilligan's Island. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Just like Gilligan's Island. Just like on Gilligan's Island. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and, um, and Lloyd – read that script, and, uh, and he still thought that there was there there to the idea, but didn't, didn't like it moving in the soap opera uh, direction, basically, you know, Melrose Place on a, on a desert island. So he went to J.J., who at the time was doing season three of Alias and was also writing a, another pilot called The Catch about bounty hunters, and he said, Are, you know, will you rewrite this script? Will you, do you, do you think, you know, can, can you take it on? And J.J.'s response was... Uh, I don't have any time, but if you guys identify a writer that I can partner with and supervise, I may be interested in the idea. And uh, I had a colleague, Heather uh, Caden, who I had been basic. She was an executive at ABC. I'd been pestering her to get a job on Alias, and she had always felt like JJ and I would click. And so she called me up on a Friday night and said, all right, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I finally got you a meeting with JJ. The bad news is it has nothing to do with Alias. It's about this plane crash idea. But um, it'll get you in the room with him. You'll impress him. He'll hire you on Alias. And I was like, but don't I have to have good ideas about the plane crash thing uh, in, o- in order to impress him? And she was like, yes, that too. So, um, so I met with him the following Monday. Um, and I, was wear- I, I came into his office and I was wearing my lucky T-shirt, which is when I was um, like six years old, my father and I were members of the Star Wars fan club, which was called Bantha Tracks. Oh, and, they, yes. and they basically, thank you, sir. Um, <laughs> Uh, and they, uh, you know, they, it was like mail order. Like they, they had like a, you know, a fan letter. And anyway, I had this T-shirt that when I was uh, six years old, you know, I would wear to sleep and went down to my knees. And now it was just sort of kind of ill-fitting, like awkward, like, you know, belly fat hanging out. And I'm like, I'm wearing, I'm, I'm wearing my Bantha tracks. And, and so I'm waiting like an hour outside JJ's office and wondering, is he going to reschedule the meeting? Is he even in there? And he just walks, and I'm a huge, I, I have to say, I'm a huge JJ fan at this point in my life. Huge Felicity fan, huge Alias fan. And I'm like, I just have to not geek out and act like this is a normal, it, like a normal meeting. And he just walks by me, he goes, oh, Bantha tracks. Oh! You know, and I was just like, Yes. I'm in. I'm in. But it is, yeah. it, is, it, is, it is kind of an interesting nonverbal form of nerd communication. And I'm, I'm looking out now and I see, you know, you're wearing the Forest Moon of Endor shirt, which is a mashup of that and Haunted Mansion of, of, uh, of the, the Jedi ghosts, basically, in Haunted Mansion. And, and, uh, and this, is, this is a way that we communicate. And part of that is... It's tribal, right? It is I mean, tribal. It's, like, it's tribal because yeah. you, you wear it because you know that if 
members of your tribe will go, oh, and you instantly have a connection. And I've, I've worn stuff to meetings before where I go, I just want to see. And if they know what this is, then we will instantly connect. And obviously right. that worked. I mean, JJ, you, you know, you and JJ are part, and Joss are all a part of this generation of, of fanboy creators, basically, that are now so much a part of our culture, but really weren't until around, you know, late 90s, you know, at least the way that we know it, the way that we know it now. So you, so you get this dream job, I assume. It yes. was a dream job. Dream. And was it uh, satisfying, stressful? What, is it, what does it feel like to you to get your dream job? The process of making the pilot was awesome. I met him, I met JJ the last week of January. And just to contextualize, so we were complete strangers in a room for a very first time the last week of January. And then essentially the last week of April, approximately 13, 14 weeks later, we handed in the two-hour uh, pilot of Lost. And that's not the script. That's the whole thing. So over the course of those 14 weeks, we wrote it, we cast it, we went to Hawaii, we shot it, we edited it, we, sco- you know, we, sco- it was d- we made a movie in that period of time. That was one of the most incredible experiences of my life because you're just in it. Like, you're totally living in, in present time. Then once we turned over the pilot and the response was okay, what's the next one? You know, like you, you should be able to answer that question. It was like, oh, we were just so focused on, on doing this one. What do, what do you mean? It's like, well, where do the polar bears come from? What's that, <laughs> you know, what's that noise in the jungle? It was like, well, well, we have some ideas. Then the terror started to really set in because it was sort of like, uh, oh my God, what have we wrought? It was a, it was a little bit the, exci- the excitement of putting together Frankenstein's monster and then now you throw the switch the lightning comes in and it sits up and you're like, oh, this didn't. You know, this, <laughs> oh, I just thought you were still going to yeah, be dead. I didn't yeah, realize you were going to get right, up and start exactly. walking around. <laughs> I've created immortality. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, a lot of responsibility. Scary and it's afraid of fire. Um, so, and then JJ, uh, uh, so essentially what happened was we shot the show in Hawaii and we had to edit it in four, day, four or five days. And we, so we, we came back, we'd been editing for three days, and we were editing through the weekend with this, our fantastic editor, Mary Jo Markey, and, and I came in on Sunday morning, and I walked into the editing room, and JJ and Mary Jo are in there, and so is Tom Cruise. <laughs> and and we're just, he's just sitting there. Just hanging out. And, you know, it's that weird, uh, like, and he, it's just, uh, JJ's like, oh, hey, this is Tom, and I have to be like... Hi, Tom. Like, oh, yeah. right. oh, and what do you do? Yeah. Are you, uh, yeah. Are you a director? What How is do you he do in our editing room? And, and Tom Cruise is like, holy shit, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I mean, like, th- this pilot is amazing. Like, and I'm like, my brain just does the math very quick. And I'm like, oh, Tom Cruise is, why is JJ showing it? Oh, he's going to go off with Tom now. Why wouldn't he? I want to go off with Tom now. Right. Like, well, I want to get on Tom's motorcycle and never look back. <laughs> Just hold yeah. on. Just keep driving, Tom Cruise. Just keep driving. Don't you stop. You're just you're hanging I'm off like, the side like a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> the Kenny Loggins is playing in my ear. Danger zone. For sure. Yeah. And uh, and uh, so like a couple weeks later, the cu- a couple weeks later, JJ 
takes Mission Impossible 3 to direct. Right. And now I'm essentially 30 years old. I'm the CEO of a $60 million a year corporation that has offices in Los Angeles and Honolulu. You know, I have a cast of 14 series regulars, and I still don't know where the fucking polar bear came from. <laughs> you know? And I've got to write this thing. And that was not fun. And so over that, uh, you know, we, put, we had a, a, a group of writers that had started working o- as early as, um, as while we were shooting the pilot. We, we, we broke and wrote the first six episodes together kind of in a vacuum. And then the other thing, that ha- then the show premiered. And, um, and, and the messaging that we were getting before the show premiered was, at the time, ABC was the last place network. And everyone, you know, they did their testing or whatever, and they're like, we, you know, don't get your hopes up. And they weren't, like, all excited. Like, it was sort of like, we did our testing, and, you know, we think that maybe, we're, we hope that we can get, like, eight or nine million people to watch the show. And if we can build some audience, then maybe you'll get a back nine. Because right. I ordered 13 episodes. And uh, that started to feel really good to me because I was like, this would be a cool legacy. We made 13 episodes of Lost. It got canceled. Right. It's kind of like The Prisoner. Like, maybe right. it's a cool... Or Firefly. Yeah, or, right. right. It's just a cool cult show that never realized its true potential because it was t- ahead of its time. And then, uh, and then the show premiered on a Wednesday. Thursday morning, my phone rings at like 6.30 a.m. And right, nobody calls you at 6.30 a.m. with bad news. And right then, I... I, my heart started racing, and I answered it. It was this guy, Tom Sherman, who was an exec at ABC, and he's, he was like, you know, 17 million people watched the show last Holy night. shit. And, and that, and, well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And then, and then I burst into tears, and <laughs> I did. And I went into the office, and there were all these muffins. Like, every, <laughs> everybody had sent muffins. Oh, like, yeah. Like, Congratulations on the great success, ratings. muffins. And I was just looking around like at all these muffins and just no, going, no, you like, don't get failure muffins. Yeah, you only no, get no. success muffins. <laughs> like, Sorry, your show tanked. Here's a muffin. And, uh. it, and I was like, this is the worst day of my life because you know we were at the time. I think we were writing the seventh or eighth episode, and I was like, I'm I'm gonna have to keep doing this. <laughs> and uh, and I felt very alone and very isolated. And fortunately, right right around that time, I had reached out to Carlton Cuse, mm-hmm. who was my mentor. I, uh, he had hired me on the show called Nash Bridges, and we had maintained a, a you know, kind of a, a mentor relationship over the preceding three years. And, and JJ was off directing now, uh, or was about to. He was in pre-production, and I called Carlton, and I was like, "Please, I need a partner." And he was like, "I'll be there." And so he and I basically ran the show together for the remaining, you know, five and a half years that it was on. But that was, you know, he pulled. I, I wanted to quit. Like it was not. It was not a good feeling. I mean, I've I've heard you joke before. To, you've made jokes about, uh, you know, hey, you don't want to have to come up with the last season of a show. You know, like I've heard you make <laughs> jokes about it. Uh, Am I wearing a little straw hat when I say that? <laughs> hey, that hey, oh, like? you don't have one. Yeah, right, uh, yeah. But I, but seeing seeing where lost. What, you know, was was going, and it's like there were all these bigger conspiracies, and there was a lot of speculation. And what is this? And it seems like there's something sciencey happening. It seems like there's something, you know, uh, ominous happening at the same time. And then last season, the show went directionally different from I think where people may have expected it to go. Where, where this whole time, were you? When you're kind of writing all these, like, polar bear, smoke monster, you know, who's this Titus Welliver character? What is his character doing? Who is this? Where are they appearing? Now that he's in the desert. <laughs> the, the whole time you were doing this, were you going, how the fuck are we going to tie this up? Or, or 
do you, did you feel like, well, some things people will just be okay accepting that it's a part of the, you know, this, this crazy kind of story? I think when we were really in the weeds, um, we were communicating pretty clearly to ABC as early as finishing the pilot and certainly over the course of the first season. This is not a show that is going to go on forever because it has a mystery construct. And, um, and ABC had basically referenced Twin Peaks, which was this huge uh, kind of cult, had huge cultural impact, but it, there are only 30 episodes of Twin Peaks. It got canceled after two seasons, and the first season is only eight episodes. And so, it, and it also had a mystery construct. It had a lot, other, a lot of other amazing things going for it. But the, so, so this idea of like, guys, because it is a mystery show, that takes place on a closed environment and also has the Gilligan's Island problem, which is you have to keep contriving, you know, story to keep the people on the island. Right. Um, people are going to get very frustrated with this very fast. And we do have a plan, you know, uh, for, um, for, for moving the show into its endgame. But just nobody wanted to have the conversation about ending the show. So through the... Through the second season and, and, and midway through the third season, ABC was ap- the show was still getting huge ratings. It was still very zeitgeisty, and and um, and just nobody wanted to have any conversation. We don't cancel a show that's successful. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and we continued arguing uh, in that period of time through season two and into season three. It was just we were doing everything we could to just keep them on the island, which right. was immensely frustrating. And a lot of it involved introducing new characters and, uh, and new storylines. And the and others. We, yeah. And we had, well, the, uh, you know, w- the others were always part of the design. But I think that we, we really made, I think, almost like 60 hours of Lost ha- halfway into the third season before they were willing to entertain the idea that there would be an end game. Um, and once they finally said, yes, we're going to let you end the show, we would have rather ended the show after four seasons, t- five tops, and they were like, we'll let you end it after nine seasons. Oh, geez. So that was the negotiation we were in, and when we finally agreed to end it after six, we were able to start having conversations about where we wanted to land, but, but we'd already been driving for so long that I think that, that the idea of looking back you looking at the road behind us and saying, do we acknowledge these mistakes we make, made and tie them up as well? Or do we just want to focus on this, this, that, or the other? Um, but I, I take complete and total responsibility for the ending of the show. And as divisive or polarizing as it may be for others, you know, I, 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 I'm really happy with the way that it turned out considering. And um, we, we made 121 hours of a show that you know, should not have had had that much show in it. And we were still a top 10 show when it ended. And I know that there are, you know, again, uh, the, there are mixed feelings about the final season and the final episode. But, you know, there's another narrative, which is that the, the, that the finale was actually nominated for a writing Emmy. And the final season was actually nominated for a drama series Emmy when only, you know, uh, when, when, you know, shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad are on the air. So there was another narrative out there that said, maybe not Lost that went out at the top of its game, but it's like, let's celebrate this thing for lasting this long. And also, uh, just a little trivia that some of you guys may know, uh, talking about the others... There was a, a, a fellow by the name of Ethan who, what is his name in real life? William Maypo there. And what, who is his cousin? 
Tom Cruise. Tom fucking Cruise. It all comes back around. Sure. Everything's always about Tom Cruise. Nice call. Always. Nice. Call. Always about Tom yes. Cruise. But when you, you know when you were on the podcast a few years ago, we talked about it because I think a lot of the the one thing that the one thing that I do think fandom does a bad job of doing is understanding how things work because we get very emotional and we go like you said, why can't this happen or why can't that happen, and. You know, what I see now is when people immediately write about an episode that they just watched and they go, well, I just watched this episode and this was dumb. This didn't have to happen this way. They really fucked it up. It's like, but you don't know. You can't make that claim until you see the whole series because you don't know what's coming up. You have no idea. And when you were on the podcast, you said, listen, we have to be flexible. We have a plan, but we have to be flexible. In as much as, you know, there was a whole storyline for Mr. Echo. Right. For and it's like, but he wanted to leave the show. Right. And so we can't force, you know, we couldn't force him to stay on the show. So we had to, you have to scrap his storyline halfway through and right on the fly. How much of that happened that prevented you? I'm just trying to get, get people to be sympathetic to understand. Like, it, it's not as always easy as going, oh, let's just make this happen the end. Right. I mean particularly when you're doing an ongoing television show, which is different than movies and certainly, you know, uh, a, a book series, you know, uh, J.K. Rowling has complete and total control over where the Harry Potter story goes because all she has to do is write it down to make it happen. She doesn't have to, you know, she doesn't have to pay for Hogwarts or or, or wrangle the actors who are playing Hermione and Ron and, and, and Harry. So, but in television, all of those real-world factors exist. At the same time... Um, you know, you you have to you have to allow for the fact that maybe Mark Hamill gets in a motorcycle accident between Star Wars right. and Empire, and so that Hoth opening never happened if Mark Hamill did not did not have that motorcycle accident to basically explain Luke's appearance. Right. Um, and and so you 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 have to be malleable in that way. I get that the fans of a show don't want you to come out afterwards. You know, if an episode ends, they don't want me to turn around in my smoking jacket and basically say, let me explain why we killed Mr. Echo. You know, like, um, that doesn't really exist. But I do think having a little bit of latitude, and, and also, you can't just blame external factors like, oh, this episode was crap because it rained on us the entire time in Hawaii and we had to go indoors and do an entire episode set in the hatch. Right. Um, that's an external factor. But there's an internal factor, too, which is you make mistakes. I mean, we had to write an episode of Lost every eight working days, which essentially means that we would come in on a Monday and Jesus. we'd be looking at a big white board. And the following Wednesday, we'd have 55 pages of material that we'd start shooting. But while we were doing that, we were brainstorming the episode that would follow and, and shooting the episode that preceded and editing the one that was two before that. And we would do that 25 times a year. And you're going to make mistakes. <laughs> like, that's just, going, that's just going to happen. And so the... So what do you do when you make a mistake? Do you double down, you know, and just keep making it over and over again? Or do you say, like, I think, you know, one, one of the mistakes that we made was that there were 48 survivors of the initial crash of the oceanic um, uh, uh, air, airplane. Shouldn't we be hearing from the people who are not Kate and Sawyer and Jack and Locke and Michael? Like, you know, we called them socks, you know, um, and we're like, we should be hearing, we should be bringing the socks out of the chorus on occasion. Like, it's just very weird that there's only 48 survivors and we only ever hear 14 of you them. You just kind of see people milling in the background. Like, there was one season where yeah. two new survivors came, right. came out. Nikki and, and Paolo. Yes, yeah. Nikki and Paolo. But, and yeah. then they immediately were like, 
Hey, Jack, what are you going to be like? Don't call him Jack. Hey, you don't know him. What do you right. do? Who are you? Yeah. Who are these people that are right. so familiar with the survivors? And Sawyer's like, who are these guys? <laughs> but, but even before Nikki and Paolo, like, occasionally a guy would, like, walk up to, like, Matthew Fox and be like, hey, I got a rash. I hear you're a doctor. <laughs> and it's like, who are where did this, this guy, guy come from? Yeah, but we we kept feeling like it was just so odd that they were walking around in the background. And then I think it might have been Javier Grigio Marks watch, who's an amazing writer and and went on to create this this great show, The Middleman. And um and and he might have said like they do it. I think he just said like they do it on Star Trek, you know. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. There's only like five people. So, like, <laughs> there's like there's an entire there are hundreds of people on just the, walking around on the with, Enterprise like, and p- pushing shit. And yeah. it's like okay. <laughs> We've heard from our last sock. But, um, you know, uh, our intentions were good, but you make mistakes. And, 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 and when you make a mistake on a serialized show, you don't get just to, just get to do a D.O., you know? Right. Like, you can't just say, let's pretend that never happened. You inherit it. So all the mistakes begin to pile up, and, um, and you get to, to choose whether you want to revisit it or just pretend it never happened. Um, and um, that's a judgment call every time you do it. Is there one in particular where you're like, oh, we were so close on this one thing, I would go back and change this if I could? No, I, you know, I mean, I, I think certainly the Nikki and Powell storyline is one that Carlton and I and the other writers have talked about, saying that we didn't, that didn't necessarily work out the way that we wanted it to. And I think we, we were still, in the sixth season, we, we, we felt like we still had to introduce new characters. So there, there, there was this guy, Dogen, played by this uh, incredible actor in a temple in the middle of the woods uh, jungle who um, uh, we had been referring to the temple and we felt like we had to pay that off. But the idea of introducing new characters in the final season of the show makes no sense if you're, if you're in your end game. Mm-hmm. So I'm not entirely sure that was the greatest idea ever. But it, again, it felt like a good idea at the time. And all the thinking behind it was like part of, in, part of new seasons of Lost is introducing new characters. And it's, the audience likes it when we introduce new characters. Desmond wasn't there at the beginning. Ben Linus wasn't there at the beginning. You know, Faraday wasn't there at the beginning. You know, so let's keep introducing new blood. Um, and, and that creates new permutations for the old blood to interact with. But sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Chemistry isn't something you can put on the page. It either exists or it doesn't. And then you got Waltz, and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah he's a kid. He's going to start to get older. We could not cryogenically freeze. <laughs> you could not cryogenically no, freeze. No, no. Or could, no. You, couldn't, you couldn't freeze him. But the, but, and then also, we tried. And then also I want to say, uh, I think uh, Daniel Roebuck's character has maybe one of the best deaths on television of all time. Do you remember his character? He's the one Dr. With, the, with the sweaty yes. dynamite. Yes. Hey, guys, we got a boom. Yes. I mean, like, that was such a brilliant. So you guys did have a lot of fun. But I, but I wonder, coming out of Lost and then now that, you know, then you go into Leftovers, which is another show with, a, you know, a, a, another mystery show with a lot of big ideas behind it. What did you learn from Lost taking into Leftovers? It's hard to, you know... It's hard to synthesize it into, like, very specific lessons, you know, like, um, like I can make a list of things uh, that I've learned. It's, it's very – and it's also – they're two entirely different animals in that The Leftovers was on for 28 episodes and Lost was on for 121. And Lost was a big tent show, right, that was supposed to have big, broad, general appeal. And The Leftovers was more of a – you know, and I put air quotes around this, but a tone poem. Sure. You know, it wasn't seeking sort of the same thing. But I, and, and, and more importantly, I think what appealed to me about The Leftovers – 
was it was a book, a novel by Tom Parada, who is an author that I've always loved, and it's the only book that he's ever written that had anything supernatural in it. So I loved the fact that he was stepping outside of his comfort zone. But more, the other thing that I loved about it was that it was unapologetic about its ambiguity. And I, and I guess what I realized was that it was unfair for me to take the position as it related to Lost that that there was going to be a certain degree of ambiguity because built into the DNA of Lost, and more importantly... Carlton and I, as the spokespeople of Lost and J.J. before Carlton, were saying, you are going to get answers. Mm -hmm. All along, we were saying that versus you got to brace yourself for some ambiguity, like because life can be mysterious and some things are not everything always gets answered to your level of satisfaction. I think if we had taken that tack. So I think this idea of which was the truth, like being more honest in terms of the both the conversation that you're having inside the show and outside the show. But The Leftovers was much more unapologetically ambiguous. And, and, you know, the central mystery of The Leftovers is 2% of the world's population disappears in a flash, 140 million people. So you would think, hey, if I'm going to watch that show, that's, we're, we're going to be finding out where those people went and why. And that's the one thing that The Leftovers is never going to do. Do you still want to watch it? And that's why, you know, I think... Uh, the last numbers that I saw, 14 people watched the show. Inclusive. But it was also sort of like, what, won't it be cool to write a show where we're not chasing that answer? Can it be interesting? Can we make the show interesting for the audience knowing they're never going to get the thing that you would traditionally want the most from it? Well, that's, and, you know, and that's why I did it. That, and that's a, hearing you say that is because Kirkman has always maintained, like, yeah, you're not going to find out what happened. You're not going to find out why there was a zombie virus, right. which is which is such an which is such an amazing feat that people just accept that now. He's, they've managed to take the attention completely off the traditional idea of what a what you know like a zombie thing would be, which is why. Yes, and no one asks that question anymore, and it's such an interesting thing. And it's like, oh yeah, I don't know. We'll probably never find out. It's not really. Yeah. I don't really care. More importantly, I mean, other than the fact that mystery is not baked into the DNA of Walking Dead in terms of, like, why did this happen? The other amazing thing about it is, because I, I, I worked on World War Z. Right. And, and, and I didn't work on, I had read Max Brooks's uh, book, which is incredible. It's incredible, and, and you, know, you should read it, and you should listen to the you, audio play that he you, made from it as you well. You should read it, and it's obviously a very different animal than the two-hour film, but by, by time I, I came in and I, I did all this writing work with uh, Drew Goddard, the movie already existed, but the but the question on the table and for the problem that needed to be solved was how can Brad Pitt beat the zombies? Right. You know, like Brad's got to beat the zombies, and it was like, oh, okay. And the <laughs> and the fact that The Walking Dead has never taken on that like, how do you beat the zombies? It's right. Everyone on the show and the fans who watch the show are basically like, this is about a world where you're living with the condition of the zombies, but that's off the table. Right. Like, there's never going to be like. Hey, let's get, you know, let's get, ne- if we can get Negan and, and Rick and, and, you know, Ezekiel in a room together, like, maybe they could figure out a way to beat the zombies. <laughs> like, like, those guys could be like, guys, we got a serious zombie problem. We really you know? need to figure this out. Have you noticed those yeah. guys that are like, ah, they're walking around? Right. We got to do something about I mean, that. I think we should, it's time to start getting proactive about guys, this zombie situation. If you moved into a people building. Keep, people keep getting eaten. They keep getting zombies. eaten in the face. Right, and they turn yes. around, he's right there. If right. you moved into a building 
and it was infested with rats, at a certain point you would go, we should probably get rid of these rats. Right, absolutely. Not like, okay, I'm going to live in this part of the house right. and over there, and yes. then we'll just have to... Let's just start, let's just keep driving watermelons over to each other's <laughs> but I love and, and fighting over those. I love the idea of, of, of people accepting ambiguity because it's like, it's a, and then there's a show like American Horror Story, which is just like this, with, where <laughs> you go, hey, I want to know, is that, is that person an alien? What happened at the end of that thing? And they're just like, hey, d- b- fucking doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> ne- ne- next season, Jessica Lange's going to have yeah. different color hair. No. That's I, all that matters. I, I think that's their Emmy campaign yeah, this year. Yeah, that's, yeah. That doesn't fucking matter. It's just Ryan Murphy. Yeah, on, exactly. On billboard. When yeah. we come back, our audience members are going to step up, ask questions. We're going to give away uh, prizes. Uh, remember, you guys are going to be a part of this as well, at Talking on Facebook, Twitter. You'll get exclusive updates about guests. You can ask questions. Use the hashtag TalkingHardwick. We want you involved in the conversation. Absolutely. This is, this is for you. This is like, this is like Comic-Con panel, the show, uh, a little bit. Meta. More, and, more with Damon Lindelof in just a minute. We'll see you on Talking. Welcome back to Talking with Chris Hardwick. Damon Lindelof is my guest. A couple things from, uh, from social media. Mr. Gibson on Twitter says, do you know that a huge amount of us loved and understood the ending of Lost? Just oh. know that the, there's still some positivity in social media. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Gibson. Cellador815 says, can you finally admit that Kate was pregnant with Jack Shepard's baby? Evangeline Lilly loves this theory, too. No. Okay. Uh, BC, BC Ecola422 uh, on Twitter, who is your favorite character to write for on Lost? It... it- it, alter, it, it alternated over seasons, but I always get frustrated by people who are like, oh, I can't pick my favorite kid. I love them all the same. Right. It's like, no, one of them's your favorite. <laughs> uh, I, 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 ben Linus. Ben Linus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I get Michael Emerson, guys. Michael yeah. Emerson. Yeah. Ben. Such a complex character. Yeah. And we really saw his alignment shit. I mean, he really was one of those characters where they're like, he's a villain. He's got a story. He has a daughter. He's got a person. Oh shit! Oh, I don't <laughs> know what to feel. How his daughter is being executed? We don't yeah. know what. To, I don't know what to feel. He's uh, amazing. Yeah. Let's uh, let's have a question from the audience. Whoever from the audience has a question they want to get up and ask. Oh wow! Uh, Charity and Leslie from Mapleton, <laughs> New York, and they say, "Do you believe in heaven or purgatory?" Seems to be a theme. Dot dot dot. Is there more? Jan is in the basement. Mixing huh. up the yes or no. Do I believe in heaven or purgatory? Yes or no? Uh, no, I, uh, I don't. It, but uh, it's something that I spend a lot, uh, a disproportionate amount of time thinking about, but I don't personally believe in it. So. And exploring through your, through your art. So I'm, 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 I'm a nihilist when it comes to the afterlife, as I'm, from the looks of you, I would suspect. Uh, pleases you to no end. Um, uh, right here, I have, uh, this, this is here, this is a hat that, that Damon brought here in this, uh, these are leftovers. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Thanks, guys. Thank you for being here. Smoking kills, kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. let's, let's take a video message. Hi, Damon and Chris. My name's Shane from Windsor, Ontario, Canada, and my question is, in The Leftovers, were there any hidden references or tie-ins to Lost that you wrote in for fun that the audience may have missed? Hi, my name is Shane, and I'm on Riverdale. (laughs) (laughs) Canadians are so great. They are. They're great. He's he's got, like, a really cool teen vibe to him. He's happy. He's very happy. We'd all be happy if we lived in Ontario. If we were Canadian. Yeah, Canada's great. Yeah, uh, have you seen their prime minister? I mean, dreamy. I go on his motorcycle too. 
And you, I'll tell you what. You know he has. I'll be in the back of Tom Cruise. You'll be yeah. in the back of Justin Trudeau's. And you and I will just hold hands oh across the entire way. And then Van Damme can just balance a leg yeah. on each one of our yeah. heads. And then we'll just drive down the... Someone is making that meme right I now. really... It's and another I T-shirt. Will you will pay a thousand dollars if you draw that. Right now. Right now. It's gotta be a meme. So any 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 nods to Lost and leftovers? Uh, you know, I think that the meta nod is that um, is that uh, Lost started in Australia, started in it's a flight from Sydney to Los Angeles, um, and the leftovers entire final season is ending in Australia, is taking place in Australia, and so I do feel like. Um, uh, uh, certainly revisiting um, the Australia idea and everything that it represents to me was was as, as close as the two sh- shows come to one another. Excellent. All right. Uh, another question from the audience. Hello, what is your name? Thank you. Uh, my name is Lindsay. I'm from Atlanta. And my question is, what do you think Hurley, Ben, and Walt are doing with the island right now? Oh, my God. Uh, I... I, I see the I uh, I see the Hurley Ben and Walt um, thing is like sort of more of a half hour comedy because um, the drama thing has already been done sort of more just of like a, a sit, like a like a sitcom and I just think they're getting in, a, in just all sorts of hijinks maybe they've adopted the smoke monster as kind of their pet <laughs> and uh, it can turn into all sorts of things but I think uh, the unexpected route to go is. Uh, is, is slapstick and and hijinks. On slapstick the island, and hijinks. We've done all the other stuff. But you haven't. You ever have? Did you ever think about it sometimes at night, like what those characters are doing anymore, or do you just so are you just past it? Yeah. To, to say that I'm past it, I think, is not honoring it. But at the same time, you know, we spent so much time working on the ending and bringing the show to a conclusion. I feel like it would be a huge cop out to be like, "Oh, there was just one thing that we didn't do over the right. course of six years." So um, I, people ask sometimes, is there going to be any more Lost? Um, and I hope there is, but I don't think that I should be involved with it. I'm really m- more curious to see, you know, what someone else's spin would be on it. I was, uh, um, it w- I was lucky enough to work on something like Star Trek that I grew up loving and, you know, and, and, and got to, you know, kind of visit someone else's world. If someone wants to do that with Lost, I celebrate it, but... Um, I, I, I'm retired from the island for now. Yeah, Damon wrote uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm sure you guys probably knew that. And that, and that hearing about, you know, J.J. being a Star Wars fan and then getting to, to do a Star Wars movie and you being a Star Trek fan and getting to do a Star Trek movie. Well, actually, J.J. did a Star Trek movie, too. Correct, yes. So, uh, so fuck him, I guess. Did you need both of those? Yeah, exactly. J.J., did you really need both yeah. of those at the same time? And now I think he's doing Battle Beyond the Stars. Nah, I mean, let's yeah. just take it down yeah, a notch. Right, we get exactly. it. You yeah. can do anything, J.J. Abrams. We have a very special present for you, Lindsay. I know you're from Atlanta. I don't know how you're going to get this home. but uh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, wow. it's uh... unbelievable. <laughs> I hope you, I hope you booked an extra. There you go. Wow. And yeah, as a special fan tribute, I'm not going to explain to you where that came from. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> we have another video. <laughs> it's just going to sit there the whole. It's staring at me. I mean, what are you supposed to do with it, really? Uh, we have another video message. Hi, my name is Matthew. I'm from Almani, California. And my question is, why do you like sinks so much? <laughs> do you understand this question? The, why, why do you like sinks? Why thing? do I like sinks? Yeah. Uh, so I quit t- Twitter, but I, I, I kept hearing Instagram is much nicer. And 
it, it's just, uh, you know, it's more visual. It's photograph-based. So I created an Instagram account and was trying to figure out how it worked. And I accidentally took a photograph of a sink and, <laughs> and posted it. And That's so, exactly how it works. So, but I didn't realize that I posted it. And within like a day, I got like 20 emails saying like, what does the sink mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, my, my Instagram bio for a while was just, I like sinks, guys. <laughs> and, and on occasion, I would take a picture of a sink. So, but, this is, but this is exactly the kind yeah. of, because I don't know... Uh, do, do, do you get a lot of uh, people asking you what Perfect Strangers is? Yes. Because there's a Perfect Strangers storyline that you guys keep going back to, but I would imagine millennials have no idea what Perfect Strangers is. I know what it is because right. you and I are about the same age, but it was a very delightful <laughs> sitcom about a, a very um, frenetic young man and his, his cousin, Balky Baltakamus, who nice was from, yeah. from Mipos. And had his own ways and came over. Which is like a made-up country. Because totally made-up country. if it wasn't, the people of Mipos would be rioting in the streets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would not, they would not, be, it'd not be cool. Yeah. It'd be like, it'd be like, oh, yeah, it, if, if there was a real Mipos, the show was almost a human rights violation. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. But it was, uh, he was Cosin Palki, Cosin yeah. Larry, Cosin yes. Larry Palki. So what is your fascination with Perfect Strangers? And how did you convince uh, everyone to weave that into the show? When we were first talking about the leftovers, because 2% of the population has disappeared and we were world building, one of the fun conversations when we didn't actually want to be writing the show was like, who are the celebrities who have disappeared? And in Parada's book, like Shaquille O'Neal disappears, um, J-Lo disappears, Anthony Bourdain and a number of other celebrity chefs disappeared. It's like a statistical anomaly that celebrity chefs are disappearing. It's like... Like, so who else? We, you know, we should know who else disappeared. And one of the writers on the show, uh, writer-producer Jackie Hoyt, said, did you, she just goes, did you hear the entire cast of Perfect Strangers disappear? <laughs> the entire cast. <laughs> and we had the same reaction that you did, which was we all started laughing. We're like, we're doing it. Um, and then in the, in the second season of the show, uh, spoiler alert, if, if you haven't binged it yet or you want to watch, so I'm about to say something that spoils, but we, we had a, a mystery where these three girls disappear and you think maybe this has been a secondary departure. They've gone to where, wherever the place that we'll never explain is. But in fact, they've, st- they've faked their own departure and we wanted to g- give the audience a chance to guess that. It was like, oh, what if one of the, ca- one of the cast members from Perfect Strangers is actually like living in Mexico? <laughs> and so we called up Mark Lynn Baker, who played cousin Larry and we were like are you willing to do like a five second cameo on the leftovers and he was like when and where oh that's amazing and then he was so great that it was like let's double down and in the final season of the show make this like not get make it a part of like a huge arc like actually bring this guy back and give him uh stop taking it as a joke but play it completely and totally straight and he he really uh he he did this beautiful piece of um acting basically delivered like a you know five page long monologue opposite Carrie Coon who's a you know quite a powerhouse herself and 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 so it was sort of like comedy comes in threes but the punchline is devastating loss right um, and uh, and Marklin Baker nailed it so uh, that that's the uh, that's the perfect strangers arc on the show uh, and then a couple more questions before I let you go just the difference between because uh, I don't know I don't know if you're allowed to say or not but 
you know, Damon will come in. There, there are a handful of people in the, in, the, in the industry who will sort of come in as, like, you know, 11th hour script doctors. Like, if there's a movie that's, you know, the studio is really bullish on making, but it, it's not quite working, they'll bring people in kind of, you know, in, in the final hour and be like, what can, what can you do with this? Are you allowed to say any of the stuff that you've come in on, or are you not allowed to talk about it? There, there, uh, there's no one who's saying, like, you're not allowed to do it, but I think, like, as a professional courtesy, because I've worked on movies and I, and I, I create the same kind of Algonquin roundtable yeah. for our movies. So it's something that is done, but you don't talk about it because, God forbid, anyone ever admitted that they made a mistake, right. you know, or that something wasn't perfect from the word go. Um, then the fan community is like, well, when did you figure that out? Like, right. That wasn't the way that you originally envisioned it. So, but, it, you know, there, it's one of my favorite parts of the job is, you know, is, is not having the responsibility of it being mine, but, but, but helping identify ways to make someone else's thing better. Well, I'm sorry, that was actually a rude question. I don't want to force anything to awaken. <laughs> <laughs> but, no. No, okay. I was fishing. No. I was fishing. No. I was fishing. Yeah. I was fishing there. Just uh, pick the you pick your least favorite part of the Force Awakens and blame it on me. <laughs> that's what I would say. Like, uh, no, I, 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 I did not. Uh, they that, did not need my help on that. That's one. such an interesting career path, though. Too. I mean, I know there are people who just do that. You know, being able to come in and help making stuff work and help like time, time tying around. But what it, what is it that you love particularly? Is there anything that you love more about writing film than you do over television? Um. I, I think that the true transportive um, uh, sort of fantasy is still film. I mean, that idea of sitting in the theater, the lights go down, you've got the, you know, you've got the popcorn, you've never seen this thing before. You know, it is this sort of magical, it's as close to magic as, as I've ever come in my real life, the ex, you know, the experience of sitting in a movie theater. And so recreating that, uh, that experience for someone else is, uh, is quite amazing. But I think that for me as a writer, I'm 44 years old now. I've done both. I've come to believe that I'm much better at television than I am in movies because I can't cram all the ideas into a two-hour format. Right. Um, and there's just all these kind of beats that you have to hit. And so as a, as a fan, I'd be like, God, is there a way to write a movie that costs more than $100 million and it doesn't have a portal opening up and, and, and bad guys are coming through it or the thing is going to explode? Like, let's just, you know, let's just, and do you have to save the world? There's got to be a way to do that. You know, I don't want to do that. And then suddenly I get hired to write these movies and I'm, you know, and it, you know, it's the ending of Prometheus. And if the ship blasts off and it's headed for Earth and if it lands on Earth, everybody's going to die. And I'm like, I am doing this now. Oh, my God. <laughs> I cannot stop myself. And so I think in television, um, you can tell stories in much different ways, much more unexpected ways. All the, you know, all the exciting storytelling, I think, right now is happening in TV and indie films. Sure. And it doesn't mean that I don't go love going and seeing, you know, uh, like all the big Marvel movies or the big DC movies or, you know, the, the big event franchise films. I love it, but I don't, you know, I don't think that I have particularly anything to offer in those fields anymore. Do you, so you mentioned, you mentioned the, this, the, the comic book movie bubble that we're in right now. Do you see it bursting anytime soon or do you feel like we're still, because I, I look at Deadpool and I go, okay, Deadpool was amazing, but there's no way Deadpool would have worked if we didn't have, you know, like 15, 16 years of super, of, of the, of the modern day superhero movies 
to be able to make a, a referential movie like Deadpool that essentially kind of identifies and makes fun of it. It almost kind of made me go, oh, Deadpool works so well commenting on these types of movies. Does that mean that, the, that we're on the far side of the bubble right now with them? I mean, I think that they definitely need to come, you know, need to, to constantly reinvent themselves, but they are here to stay. Like, um, I, I would be shocked if 25 years from now, the, those those comic book movies or superhero uh, films are still not dominating the marketplace. Because the reality is, is, you know, if you think back to, you know, the bonds of our childhood, which were, were you know, I have, you know, I had Roger Moore, Roger Moore was my too. first bond. Yeah. And then Connery came back for Never Say Never Again, which is just a remake of Thunderball. Like for one, so there, there was a simultaneous dual bond, but, but, and, 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 and so Bond's, Bond's peak was actually kind of before, but before I was born. And if you basically ask in like 1968, like how long are people going to be into James Bond? <laughs> He's just one dude. Right. And we've got, you know, we've got Iron Man and Cap and, you know, I want to see the Black Panther movie and I want to see a Black Widow movie. It feels like the, the, you know, I've been reading these comic books now for, you know, for 40 years and they've just scratched the surface and they seem to be able to make them very well. You and I ran into each other after the Doctor, Doctor after Strange. Doctor Strange. Yeah. And I think, like, I still kind of come into those movies with a little bit like Doctor Strange. Like, I like, I like Benedict Cumberbatch. And then, I, and then I'm like, I fucking love Doctor Strange. <laughs> you know, like, I want to see a Wong movie now. Well, you know, you know, it's, it, you know, when you look around at the way that, you know, what was going on when you and I grew up. When, when you look around at what was going on when you and I grew up and all the things that we loved, it's like they have all double manifested now. We are in a renaissance of Star Wars comic book movies, Doctor Who. I mean, it's like everything that I feel like I loved that, you know, I mean, Star Wars and Star Trek. Star Trek may be a little more fringe than Star Wars. Star Wars, like, everyone loves Star Wars. Right, sure. But a lot of, Now it's cool, though, to be like, uh, the the new I don't have a television is, I've never seen Star Wars. Oh, fuck those people. Yeah. (laughs) That's so irritating. You know why? Because it's divisive. Yes. Now it's like... I haven't seen it. What are you going to right. do about it? Like, just fucking watch it, yeah. you know? Come on. But it's like, it's amazing how often I'll be introduced to people and be like, oh, Damon, uh, you know, uh, co-created Lost or The Leftovers. And then they feel the need to say, like, oh, sorry, I don't have a television. <laughs> and I just want to be like, well, I don't have any pants. Right. You know, Mr. Pants. What do you like, do? I, I don't have like, any of that. I'm what? a doctor. Well, yeah. I don't have any penicillin. Yeah. How about that? You can actually tell me that you own a television without offending me that you haven't that seen you haven't my watched television the show. Work. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm so, I wish people would just start going, oh, I'm sorry, I've never heard of television. Like, right, at least exactly. just completely remove yes, yourself from it. it's just such it. a lesser art form. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I've never read a book. That's, that's the equivalent of I've never seen Star Wars. You, it, if you are alive, you have to see Star Wars. You have to see it. It's two hours of your time. Yeah. It's, such, it's just too big of a deal. Like, what, what do you think makes a good comic book movie? Like, what makes a good, like, translating a comic book to a film? Um, I... I think, A, it has to have a new idea or a slightly subversive idea in it while at the same time kind of um, uh, knowing what it is. And, and, and the exploration of that line, how do you take a risk without basically saying, like, does Uncle Ben have to die in order for Peter Parker to be Spider-Man? Yes, he does. Like, but is there another way to do that story that we haven't seen before? And so I think that that idea of, um, of, of kicking the tires of canon is now essential for, for all comic book storytelling. And I think that the audience and the fandom actually wants 
that feeling of looking up at the high wire and knowing that there's not a net below it and saying, like, I kind of want that person to fall off. I'd be horrified if I if I saw it happen. But I but if you're not taking risks, I don't think you should be doing it. And last question. Uh, You are certainly someone who had a passion, had a fandom. You were able to translate that fandom into an incredible career. Uh, So for other people who are watching, who are creators, who are who are fans of stuff, what is a great piece of advice you could give for, you know, manifesting their fandom into to 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 making it their life, their lifestyle and their career? Um, it, it, it sounds so basic and, and probably unfulfilling, but I just think I am and a little bit old school, but I think reading is really important. Um, and I just read so much, uh, and continue to, um, not just, you know, comic books and, um, and sci-fi and, but, but, you know, I read lots of stuff and I think that, you know, now we live in an age where you could basically spend a year just catching up on the stuff that you missed without even scratching the surface of the stuff that's out there now, movies and TV, and you would never even need to pick up a book. But I do think that, like, the, you know, the essential storytelling of, of a Dickens or, or a Hemingway or, you know, go read The Fountainhead. Or, but there, there's another part of our brain that gets awakened by the process Read it on your device. It's okay. I'm not saying divorce from screens, but I think, you know, uh, uh, a, a wise PSA from my childhood said reading is fundamental, and I, <laughs> and I, uh, I definitely agree with that. Excellent. Thank you so Brought much. Brought to you by the book industry. Reading is fundamental. Yeah. Right. Is that oh, I'm sorry. I don't own a book. No. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't own a book. Oh, uh, touche. <laughs> David Lindelof was here. I was like, yes, and I make sure to check out all three seasons of The Leftovers on HBO. Remember, check us out at Talking on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter to find out who's going to be on the show and how you can be a part of it. We couldn't do the show without you. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Chris Hardwick, Ed Hardwick. Don't text and drive. Good night. Good day. Good evening. I don't know when you're watching this. Hopefully when it aired on TV. Cheers. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.